morning, glory, and evening, Grace America. This is California. I'm Hugh Hewitt, and this is a special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, an introduction to all things involving Western civilization, and I want to emphasize introduction. This is part two. Leading us through this beginner's course so that your New Year's resolution can, in fact, be met and answered early in the year is Dr. Larry Arn. Dr. Arn is the president of Hillsdale College. If you're just joining us, you do not know that he has his Ph.D., in modern history and political theory from Claremont Graduate School. He has been a uh, research scholar at Oxford University where he ably assisted the world's greatest historian living, some would say, Dr. Martin Gilbert. And in this part two, we are going to cover Homer, Herodotus, Thucydides, Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle. So hold on. We're going to be moving very quickly indeed. Dr. Arn, uh, thank you again for being here. Um, Thank you. What do we need to know about Homer? Old blind guy, Greek. Yeah, Homer is uh, Homer is 900 BC, and the events that Homer describes most famously, uh, the only evidence that we have for them that's of certain, is the fact that Homer described them. Uh, we don't know for sure that there was a Trojan War, and we don't know for sure that Odysseus wandered on his way back from that war, and so we don't know everything we would need to know to know the truth of the claims of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Does that matter? No, not at all. Those are, uh, it's like the question, uh, uh, who wrote Shakespeare's plays? Was it Shakespeare or Bacon or somebody else? And Harry Jaffa, whom we talked about before, he used to always say, it doesn't matter, whoever it was was pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, we have these two epic poems, and they are fabulous descriptions of character. Um, they are understood in Herodotus and Thucydides, the first historians, we're going to talk about them in a minute, to be events that gave rise to the greatest wars before Rome, the wars between the Persians and the Greeks. And uh, um, uh, it, the basic story is that a Trojan uh, steals the most beautiful woman in Greece, Helen, and the Greeks join together to go and get her back. And uh, this is told in the form of a long poem, an epic poem. It's, it's a hard-to-read poem. Hard to read? Yeah, well, I don't know. I haven't found it so. Um, I think it's exciting. You know, it, it, I'm a boy, and it's a war story. You're a boy, too. You should know, you should, you should know that, you. Yes. It's, uh, it's, a big, it's a lot of fighting. The characters in it are wonderful. Achilles and Hector, for example. Take those two. Achilles is uh, very full of himself. He's uh, a really great fighter. You can think of him like you think of George Patton. Uh, he was born for the battlefield. He's at home there. Uh, ordinary people don't quite understand a fellow like that. And, of course, he goes too far, because when he does kill Hector, who's the greatest of the, of the Trojan heroes, he drags him around behind his chariot and, and defames him. And that leads to his destruction, finally. To Achilles' destruction. Achilles' destruction. Because he angers the gods. That's right. He does. And, and he does that. The gods had protected him by letting him be dipped in a river and uh, made immune to harm on the battlefield by that. Uh, but his heel is... His mother holds him by his heel, and that part's not covered up. So he's killed by an arrow in the heel. He, he, the relationship between the gods and men is interesting in, in, in the Iliad and the Odyssey because they, they are multiple, the gods, and they have partisanship among the men. Um, and you want to get one of them on your side. 
the stronger the better. And you have a kind of an international relations between the gods and the men. If your god is more powerful uh, than, than another, that's to the good. But you don't want to make the other two angry either. And the coalitions that happen up there turn out to be uh, influential. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, among the most important things in these fabulous two epic poems is the studies of the people. Because one of the reasons to read literature is to find out about people. What are they like? But now you've walked past the, the difficulty of the poem. It might not be difficult to you, but I'll stand with my audience and say, no, wait, we've picked this up. This is a hard poem. Why bother? <coughs> well, I guess because um, it's, it's old, uh, there's that, and you should read books from other periods because it takes you out of your own and teaches you, gives you a perspective that will let you see what's permanent. But also because it is this classic confrontation and you know human life is a story both of harmony and confrontation the harmony born in the capacity of human beings to talk they're more gregarious than other kinds of creatures um, but also more apt to fight too um, and and you see all that work out you know and what what's the distance now it's 1900 years ago no 2900 years ago you see all that work out in that in those two poems about as they work out today um, there are these resentments among these people they go to fight over a matter of honor they fling each other at each other furiously in the end uh, canniness and shrewdness are the methods of victory the trojan horse and odysseus who's very wise and also an effective liar um, so it is a beautiful dramatization. It's like reading Shakespeare. It doesn't matter when it was written. But then what you're saying is that we need to be canny, shrewd, a good liar, and if uh, if possible, be dipped in a river. Yeah, and, and also uh, the claims of honor. It's an interesting thing about the, this the, about the war between the Persian uh, between the Trojans and the Greeks that it matters very much who's in the right to both of them. And they have the same standard of right. They're killing each other. They're, they're, they're bitter enemies. But this is a famous argument from C.S. Lewis, which is displayed here as well as anywhere in anything ever written, that apart from the fact that they're at war with each other, it's amazing how far they agree. If Helen was stolen, they all admit that that was wrong. But the Trojans say that she was not. And... and uh, um, if there has been an offense of one against the other, then the other, then whoever committed the offense should pay. There is a uh, demonstration there, not just of the way of human affairs, but also of the standard outside them that human affairs is subject to. And all who participate in human affairs have an agreement about that, implicit or explicit. This is an interesting book, by the way, because to sort of zoom ahead a little bit, it's not like the philosophic works. In no sense can you say that this book is an examination into those higher questions that loom above and help us understand the behavior of all these people. They make speeches about honor. They make speeches about right. This book is not an investigation, a questioning of those speeches. It's a presentation of those speeches in a dramatic adventure story. And, and it's, not, it's not written with a philosophic eye. It is a little bit like a history book. It's, it's 
not so different from Herodotus. But it is didactic. Oh, yeah. It's Very trying much. to teach you to be cunning and shrewd, to lie when necessary, and to have the gods on your side. Respect the gods, uh, commit no evil, and uh, cultivate your talents, especially those that involve fighting and rule. But then our friend Odysseus is as cunning as cunning can be. You use the word. I agree with it. And that is not, you know, that is not something one would take away, for example, from the Bible, to be cunning. Well, there are passages in the Bible that, uh, both in the Old and the New Testament, that adjure us to cunning. Uh, wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. And, of course, there are always stratagems going on in the Old Testament. For example, uh, persuade the people of a village to be circumcised uh, as a condition of you're not attacking them. And then while they're sore from that, rush in and kill them all. And kill them all, yeah. Well, then what is, with a minute in this segment, what is the critical understanding of either the Iliad or the Odyssey or both about men? Uh, well, the Greeks are better. Uh, they... They, they defend honor and the right. Uh, they are brave warriors. They are cunning fighters. Uh, they do not give in. The Trojans are a worthy opponent. Uh, and in war, it's important to be in the right, to have the gods on your side, and to win. Okay. Then I want to begin with Herodotus, the first historian to bridge to the next gap, since we still have 45 seconds left. 45 seconds? Yes. Herodotus is the first historian. He tells the story of the greatest of the ancient wars between the Greeks and the barbarians. Do you like this book, Herodotus's Histories? I think I think it's wonderful. It, it's it's full of just absolutely absurd suggestions of real events which could not have happened. Like what? Oh, I'll come back after break and tell you. Okay. You're supposed to tell me. Okay. I'm well, trying to reach back through. 30 years to remember what it is that he described. Uh, for example, the Persian king murdering, but serving the, uh, his offensive uh, satrap, his son, for dinner. Oh, yeah. Well, they probably have, that's also in Titus Andronicus. <laughs> probably <What>? happened. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out more with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. I'm not going to argue with him too much. Like I say, I have him here for a reason. I ask the questions, he comes up with the answers as we continue your education in the matters of Western civilization to start the new year on this special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, voice of reason in the West, joined on this special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. As we use New Year's Eve and New Year's Day to update you on everything you've missed and perhaps set the table for your dining again on one or more of these wonderful classics of Western literature, we're telling you now about Herodotus and his history. A little bit of history, Dr. Arn. We're dealing here with the Greco-Persian Wars. They are preceding the great civil war of Greece, which gives rise to so much of of uh, Thucydides and the, uh, and the events that follow. Persia was the overarching empire that Herodotus observed, and why did he write this down? Well, it is, it is the first book of history, that is to say, an account of the story that is neither fictional, poetic, nor uh, uh, partisan. It's, uh, it's supposed to be the story of what happened, standing outside that story and telling it fairly. Um, it is, uh, it's a, it is, in my opinion, a wonderful book. And it begins with an exploration of the difference between Greekness and barbarism. You know, the term barbarism comes from the way the Greeks thought other people talked. It sounded like they were saying, ba 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 bar And uh, it was, it, it's a kind of a derisory term. Uh, it, um, and, and Herodotus begins by standing outside that. Uh, it's as if he's just weighing up the various stories. He says that the war begins 
you know, the Persians are under Xerxes. Um, they are a one-man despotism. Uh, rule is hereditary. The word of the king is the law. He is the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branch. Uh, freedom of any kind is unknown. Uh, he he meant uh, Herodotus begins by saying that the conflict starts with the with the disagreement about this Trojan War. Uh, they think it's wrong to abuse a woman to the Persians, but they think the Greeks just went overboard. Why would they have this massive war about one woman? And they don't seem to give account of the fact that Helen was so beautiful. She was to the Greeks beauty itself. In a way, they were fighting for beauty. It is. The, the, I didn't mention before, but the Iliad is really a kind of a romance, too. And, and it is about men looking above themselves to things for which they should sacrifice. This is unknown to the Persians. The Greeks are also, by the way, they're famous poets and they're famous liars. <laughs> and, the, and the Persians are not poets and they are not liars. They believe that honesty, says Herodotus in the opening pages, is the highest of things. But then a very great curiosity is, is uh, revealed in the first few pages. Um, he says that the Greeks believe, the Persians believe, that it should be unlawful to think anything that it is unlawful to do. Then he goes on to say, and they believe that this is not only effectively able to be carried out, but that it is effectively and universally carried out. So, he says, for example, when a law is broken that is thought to be uh, the, the most important kind of law, they always deny that it actually has happened. For example, they say, when a case arises of a child killing its parents, they deny that he was really their child. He couldn't have done it. So you see, a nation which is a perfect kind of tyranny. They, they believe that the will of the king can become the will of every other person. And that, that's why Xerxes whips the Hellespont and beheads all of it, because, you know, they, he builds a famous bridge across the Hellespont to get his army over to Greece, and the bridge, while being built, is destroyed by a storm. And so he commands the Hellespont to be whipped, the, the sea, and then he throws shackles into it, and then he beheads all of the engineers. <laughs> and, and, and he begins, he, be, he, he goes over. I was unaware of that part of the story. Oh, yeah, no, it's amazing. <laughs> it's not it's good engineering good. practice, by the way. Father Go ahead. Cyrus, a river drowned uh, one of his favorite horses. And so Cyrus caused canals to be built all around the river so that it was reduced to a series of tiny little streams to weaken and punish the river for having drowned one of his horses. Now, Cyrus, his whole strategy in the war, there are two opposite things, and, and by the way, it is a fabulous story. It's, he takes a huge army. The numbers are greatly exaggerated by Herodotus, but never mind that. Historians it gave rise to the long tradition of historian, historian exaggeration. I myself am doubtless guilty of it on many occasions. Um, he takes a huge army over there, and he believes that they will simply bow to the necessity of that army. He has the Spartan defecting king along with him. And the Spartans are the bravest of the Greeks. Uh, their, their whole polity is organized around the virtue of courage. And they're the greatest warriors for 500 years. 
and uh, he takes the and 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 the Spartan defecting king keeps saying to them, "They are going to fight you," and he laughs. He thinks it's funny. They can't. We've got them outnumbered. And then, of course, he has the famous Battle of Thermopylae, where 300 Greeks, that is to say, 300 Spartans, plus about 10,000 others, uh, the others, many of them getting away on the last day, and the, and the Spartans, including their one of their two kings, Leonidas, Leonidas all mm-hmm. remaining to die. They confront this Persian horde. And see, the reason it's okay to exaggerate the numbers of the Persians is that without saying as much, if you read carefully, Herodotus has established that they are, in principle, a horde, a society organized around the idea that the will of one is the will of all. And that's not human, you see. Whereas the Greeks are human. They live as humans are to live. But you've got to explain that their king is not like the other king. Leonidas, or or Leonidas, as you say, is, is not like other kings. Sparta is not like other kingships in that regard. It is governed by much more than... Well, the Sparta, Sparta is organized around laws from Lycurgus that are very severe. Yes. And basically make the, the uh, there's, a, there's a ruling elite called a Spartiate, and, uh, and uh, every male citizen is a full-time soldier. He has no other occupation. That this gives rise to systematic system of slavery, much, much uh, wider and more perverse than in any of the Greek cities. Whole societies are held in slavery, so that the Spartans, who are unconquerable, as I say, for four or five hundred years, um, can spend all of their time training. And and Spartans have two kings. Uh, the officers, all the citizens, and all the senior Spartans exercise, often naked, with the troops themselves, to establish a kind of a fighting equality between them and respect between the officers and the men. And on a battlefield. For all that time, there's nobody like them. And, and uh, they, the Battle of Thermopylae is actually a kind of a spectacle put on for uh, Xerxes to teach him them. Like Xerxes at one point asked the Spartan defecting king, why will they fight? There's nobody behind them to whip them and make them fight. And, they, and the, the defecting king responds, basically, you don't understand. Well, the Battle of Thermopylae it's a kind of a theater. The, the Spartan king, Leonidas, is down below, fighting just like any of the men. Xerxes is up above on a dais, watching. He's getting his education. We'll continue with our collective education or introduction to that when we return. And we take up Thucydides in a book which is among, well, the best. The Peloponnesian Wars. We return to this, the special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on the special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. As we sort of do an introduction to Western civilization, we are now to Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War, which chronicles the 27-year civil war primarily between Sparta and Athens. I've never read this start to finish. I've read it often and frequently. By the way, uh, Dr. Arn, have you read the, uh, the, new bo- uh, the new novel by Stephen Pressman called Tides of War, which fictionalizes this? I have, yes. It's a fine introduction to a very difficult book as well. well. Be, you know, better still is Gates of Fire. Yes, which, it is. A magnificent book. the Battle of Thermopylae. But I, I never, I knew what that was about, but I had no idea of sort of the character of Alcibiades well, because that, those weren't the parts that we've studied. Now, tell us why people should read the history. Well, the, the Greeks are the greatest of the ancient peoples, 
the Rome, if you, if you regard that the Romans are the ones who bring us into the Christian world. Um, and the Greeks are the first people to value freedom. They don't value it in quite the sense that we do, uh, but they don't mean equality by it and universal freedom, but they mean freedom for the citizens. And they have this vibrant society in which philosophy is born, and some of the world's greatest literature and art and sculpting are born, and in which the thinkers confront for the first time the questions of how a man should live. We'll get to that. Uh, there is this enormous energy in the Greeks, and of all of the people that the Spartans, that the Persians conquered, and they conquered all over the world, um, there was this tough, stubborn little people in this small area, and they couldn't break them. They were fierce. And, of course, the effect of the banishment of the Persians, which really happened at the battle of at two battles, at Thermopylae was a kind of a spectacle battle, but then and then it wasn't that many people involved. But then, on, especially at Salamis on sea, the Persians' fleet was destroyed by the Athenians, who had abandoned their city uh, to take to their fleet. And uh, and uh, they they uh, destroyed the Persian fleet at Salamis, and then at Plataea uh, in Thebes, the Greeks all united and led by the Spartans took on a superior Persian force and destroyed them there. And that was the breaking of the Persian ambition to dominate all of Greece. Now, the, the, the Peloponnesian War comes after that, and it comes after the Athenian Empire is founded, and the Spartan Empire, which is much smaller and land-based, in mostly on the Peloponnese, the uh, peninsula island at the bottom of the, uh, um, of the uh, Greek mainland. Um, these two are now very great, and they start to come into conflict, and the differences between them drive the conflict. The Athenians, I said famously, have abandoned in the middle, basically in the middle of the Peloponnesian, uh, of the Persian War, an oracle tells Themistocles, their ruler, to uh, go to hide behind the, to, to shelter behind the wooden walls. Well, many of the walls of Athens are wood, but he interprets that to mean the ships. And they actually abandon their city, a very remarkable thing to happen in the ancient city, and they take to the sea. They are the great seafaring nation. They're the ancient equivalent of the British Empire. And uh, they're all over the Adriatic and up into, uh, toward the Black Sea. And they uh, reach everywhere. And there's a system of alliances between them all, and, and those systems gradually come to revolve around Sparta in the south and Athens a bit up the way, to the north and east. And uh, uh, they come to clash. And Thucydides' account is a wonderful thing, as you say. Uh, in some places, it's, it's uh, well, I'm not going to say that. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very fine account. And one of the things that's remarkable about it is it gives rise to a tradition of recording public speeches as a way of revealing the nature of men and their regimes. Uh, the Spartans and the Athenians have various rhetorical confrontations. And, uh, um, and in these confrontations and in the events that, that follow from them, the real war confrontations that follow from them, and the breaking of alliances in the, in the, uh, in the uh, 
battles themselves in the rising and falling of various rulers, especially Alcibiades, one comes to understand the nature of these two cities, which are both brilliant expositions of the possibilities both of Greek life and of life generally. The uh, Spartans are very warlike and very insular and, uh, and very dogged. The Athenians are far-reaching, ambitious, filled with pride and honor, also turbulent and changeable. The Spartans are ruled by traditions, the Athenians, and by this tight military society. Uh, the Athenians are ruled by the changing of, a, of, of democratic politics. And it is time for us to change... Subjects will be right back, America, on this special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arnn, the president of Hillsdale College. When we last broke off, we were talking about the Athenians being ruled by politics. The chronicle of their long struggle with their Spartan cousins contained in the history of the Peloponnesian War. And the most famous Athenian of them all, Socrates, is the subject of most of our next subject's writings, Plato. And... Uh, Dr. Arm, what do we need to know about Plato to start this? Well, Plato in, in Plato are found the authoritative accounts of this man, Socrates. And Plato, we, we, we might talk about him as a group, sort of, Plato, because we have them all down, Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. Okay. Plato and Aristotle were students of Socrates and well-known to each other. They were friends. They had some important disagreements. Uh, one of the disagreements is about the forms their relation to matter and the idea of the good. Uh, I don't think we'll go into that right now because, <laughs> uh, because maybe I couldn't, and for sure I couldn't sufficiently to make it clear to all of you. Uh, but let's talk about the broad things. Um, Socrates says Cicero, who didn't know him, a Roman who comes later, we'll talk about him. He says that, that uh, there is this change in the idea of philosophy. Philosophy means the love of wisdom, philos, love, uh, philanthropy. Uh, I was about to say philander. It does come from that. Um, and uh, sophos, wisdom. It's not the possession of wisdom. It's the love of wisdom. It's the pursuit of wisdom. And the question is, and, and philosophy begins with knowing that you don't have it. The, the basis of philosophy is a little different than the basis of faith. Um, the question is, what are the questions? For philosophy, what should it think about? Uh, should it think about the physical nature around us? Should it think about the origins? And Socrates' answer to that question, which is revealed above all in the Platonic Dialogues, is um, it should think about what you should be doing because you are a necessitous creature who lives a life and the life will come to an end. And the way you spend your time is itself a statement about what is the best thing. And so you should take up the question, what is the way for a man to live? What is right? What is good? What should you do? Socrates is the one who turns philosophy to those questions. And in its classic form, philosophy is an examination into that. Now I have to ask you about Socrates, though. He did not show up in a toga in a... In a uh the equivalent of a, of a bar room, he was first a warrior. That's right. He fought in the Peloponnesian War. And, and that gives him a special status, doesn't it, as a philosopher? Well, let me think about that. I, I can't think of any others who fought in wars, um, but I bet there are some. He, he, it, this is true. 
politics always turns. You know, you have to understand politics, you have to understand this, that the law has a monopoly on force. Today in America, uh, there are people under arrest, and we can't, it's so difficult even to understand what their names are. And some of them are going to be put in front of military tribunals, and some of them are likely to be shot or hung. And if you got a parking ticket tomorrow and you resisted the officer, ultimately the entire force of the state could be called into play to subdue you. The law is a very serious thing, and its sanctions are very high. To ask questions, you see in the, in the case of Socrates, is itself potentially a rebellion. You say that it's wrong to practice your religion if your religion asks you to fly airplanes into buildings. But I say it's right. And what if my saying that incites somebody to do that? Am I culpable? Maybe. Today, just as much as in Athens in the 5th century B.C. You're, you're working up to the fact that Socrates, of course, executed by the state for asking questions. That's right. And, and, and you see, to raise questions about what is the right way to live calls into question whether you know. And so all of the accounts of what is the right way to live are subjected to some questioning. But the question I raised for you about Socrates' special status is, is at least founded, in my view, upon the fact that he had fought, was a warrior, had seen death close at hand, and therefore was positioned by experience as well as re reason to ask the toughest questions and also, have students. Also, it gave him two things. Since he's going about this enterprise... He has an authority to prosecute it because he has done his service. Yes. It's not just that he's seen death. In the end, everybody sees that. Uh, some people see more than others. Everybody sees one. But uh, it's also that he had done his service. His was a position fundamentally loyal to the Athenian state, if standing outside it as well. And, and the disposition of Socratic politics is not rebellion. It's not a pursuit of rule or, or of a substitution of one form of rule for another. It favors the kind of rule that permits the asking of questions. So what is Plato's answer on how we ought to live? Uh, the answer is uh, complex because uh, Plato wrote all that we have from Plato, unless the letters are genuinely his, which may be, Mostly what we have from Plato, let's put it this way, is dialogues in which Plato himself never appears and in which there's a long argument and there are many points of view stated. But this much is true of Plato, that, that in Plato it is established that, that the, the, the enterprise of philosophy is the highest enterprise and that the good of that enterprise gives rise also to a kind of politics, a politics more liberal. To use that word not in its liberal versus conservative sense, but in its original sense, than had been known in many cities. I'd say that is something of the doctrine of Plato. Quick, uh, in our 30 seconds, if someone has moved to pick up Plato, where should they start? They should get uh, Alan Bloom's translation of the Republic. And begin there. They should begin with the Republic itself, and after they have read it, they should read his introduction and also Leo Strauss's essay, Plato, in Strauss and Cropsey, The History of Political Philosophy. We return after the break to, in four minutes, cover all of Aristotle. 
probably the most challenging four minutes ever for Dr. On an interview, so don't go anywhere, America. This is a special edition, part two of our walk through Western Civilization and our guide, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. We're getting your New Year's resolution set up and finished in two days here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. On this special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show, part two, I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, a student of philosophy and of history, and our guide through Western civilization in six parts. This is part two, the Hour of the Greeks. We began with Homer. We're concluding with Aristotle. You said in part one of this program, Dr. Arn, that uh, your great teacher, Harry Jaffa, held up the ethics and said, now this is a great book, one of three that he thought were a great book. Why? Well, the, the ethics is, um, uh, first of all, it's a treatise. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a statement. It's an article. It's a book written in the name of its author, different from anything we have from Plato. And it gives an account of what is an ethical life. And it, it begins by the statement, I think we spent three weeks reading the first um, the first sentence of Aristotle's Ethics in Harry Jaffa's class, and I can tell you the four Greek verbs to this day, although I've forgotten nearly every word of Greek I, re- I ever studied. <laughs> I studied a fair amount, but I, I don't remember any of it. But I can tell you the four operative words. It says every praxis, every techne, every prohiresis, and every dunamos. That means techne is like technology, technical. Uh, uh, praxis is a practical action. Uh, dunamis, like we get the word dynamic from that, and prohiresis, that's uh, a voluntary and deliberate act. What he really means is everything that human beings choose to do seems to aim at some good. So the good is rightly said to be the aim of all things. And the question becomes, how do we serve the good? What is the good? What is the highest good? What is the purpose of life? And he asks these questions in the first three or four pages, and he answers them. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, my little Katie, who's now about to graduate from college, just got offered a big scholarship from the University of Dallas. We're all proud of her. She'll probably get some from some other places, too. And I'm trying to get her to come to Hillsdale, but I haven't got that done yet. Um, she, I remember she used to be little, and she'd cry sometimes. She'll be mortified that I'm saying this. And she used to say, Daddy... Why just, I just want to be happy. Why don't you let me? And I'd say, Katie, you're too young to be happy. First, you have to learn to be good. And so if you ask one of my kids to this day, uh, what is it to be happy? They always say, to be good. <laughs> and then they sort of look at me and roll their eyes what kids do at their fathers. And then I hope you didn't send her to her room with the ethics. <laughs> <laughs> She'll never study it really ever, then, if you did that. <laughs> he, he describes that. Uh, so... so you, you learn a structure of thinking about ethics as a, as a way to think about them and give an account of them. What do they mean? What are they? There's a, in the book, there's the division of the virtues into the intellectual and the moral. The virtues that are moral are all means between extremes. Um, courage is a, means, is a mean between cowardice and rashness. It's not courageous to throw your life away for nothing recklessly. And it is not temperate. To go beyond our appointed time. And we are out of time for this hour. Stay tuned for part three on this special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show.